Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Michelangelo Matos's book, The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Let It Roll is the insanely ambitious musical history podcast. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and now heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss the American music industry's electronica push and the tragedy and debacle of Woodstock 99, which had a rave hanger. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? And that means I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Hartness to continue our discussion of Michelangelo Matos's The Underground is Massive, How Electronic Dance Music Conquered America. And this week we are covering Woodstock 99 from Rome, New York, July 22nd to 25th, 1999. Ryan, this is an infamous moment in music history. Yeah, I'm super excited because we're finally at a point in the story where my own rave journey begins and I can start to provide some primary source information rather than just like relying on books and articles and interviews. Because uh, I remember what I was doing at this time, how I was seeing things and my reactions to all this stuff. Like I remember Woodstock burning. I remember uh, owning the Prodigy's Breathe CD single and waiting eight, outside HMV the day Fat of the Land came out. So like all of a sudden, like this is all stuff that's like going on that I have actual memory of. Wow. And so how vile were the um, sewage pits at Woodstock 99? Uh, Yeah, it was pretty bad. I mean, nobody, it didn't seem obvious at the time that it was toilets. Uh, So it just, it just seemed like everybody was rolling around in the mud and they thought it was mud, but it was, yeah, we we only (laughs) found out later that it was not mud. I see. So were you there? No, God, no. I mean, okay. 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 When we're saying primary source information, I guess it's just because I was alive and watching this stuff happening on TV. I I see. Okay. Good to know. Good to know. And the chapter doesn't just cover Woodstock. It builds up to Woodstock and essentially covers, say, the efforts of the American corporate music industry to promote what they now are calling electronica uh, from about the fall of 96 through... Um, late summer of 99, which is Woodstock. Um, yeah, and this it's definitely is definitely the, the, the failed attempt of the music industry to make electronica happen. Well, I mean, it, it did happen. It was like a, it was inescapable at the time. And there was a lot of breakout artists and albums and stuff like that. And this is where, again, I fell in love with the music and could actually hear some of it on the radio or on television. So it was great like that, but it definitely did not catch on to, with, with the mainstream in general. Yeah, it didn't become the dominant genre, I think is the best way to put it. Um, although, you know, The Prodigy sells millions, Chemical Brothers sell millions, uh, Moby is going to, they introduce the album that's going to go on and sell tens of millions for Moby or 10 million for Moby. So there's definitely some success stories in here, but 
the industry put a lot of money into it. And there's an interesting quote. I've been kind of ignoring or not bringing up the quotes he uses to open these chapters. And I realized that was probably a mistake because um, he's probably trying to tell us something with these things. But there's a, a quote at the opening of this chapter. And um, he says, he's quoting somebody saying, and this is from one of the um, mailing lists. I should have this thing pulled up better. Uh, and the guy says, I'm completely prepared to allow corporate America to drop their money into our scene. I think it's a big waste on their part that will net zero results other than to exhaust their advertising and PR budgets. And that's from a Matt Bondi from the NW Raves uh, mailing list on December 1st, 1996. So, and, and Matos confronts that, that the scene in America was kind of an underground scene that was territorial, that did not want their stuff going mainstream. There was a, there was like a, there's like a schism because there's never been a moment in rave where there aren't like a bunch of douchebags saying the scene sucks now and the new people coming into the scene ruin things. And, and there's something to be said about trying to protect the rave scenes values as a safe space for misfits and oddballs. But most of the trash talk just came from jaded people that stopped going out to raves at all and are just posting negativity on message boards. So this big push and pull between the people who want to keep rave this sacred space, half the time those people, that space is in their mind and they're already like not even going out anymore. I see. So it's old man yells at cloud territory. It's getting there. All right. All right. But one of the big moves that the music industry made was MTV. And you got to remember MTV in the late nineties absolutely controlled the music industry in America. It was the mono national radio station. And this is happening at the same time as um, the, the laws had changed to allow fewer companies to own more radio stations. So radio becomes dramatically less open to new music and to variety around this time, giving even more power to MTV. And they debut a show called Amp on September 6, 1996. And this is supposed to be their electronica show. This is, you know, the the successor, their electronica version of what they did with Yo MTV Raps, which was definitely the most successful of their specialized shows, but they also had 120 minutes, which featured alternative rock, um, which was a thing in the eighties that kind of stopped being an alternative after Nirvana took over the pop world. They also had headbangers ball, which, which uh, featured metal stuff. So that, you know, they're returning to the well with this formula. They're featuring videos by FX twin orbital tricky sun electric um, and a ton of small artists get a nice payday because they use, uh, bumper music which is the music they play you know while the vjs are talking or, or segueing in and out of commercials um they're using a lot of music from astral works detroit beyond the third third wave compilation so some of those uh producers got a nice payday and a guy named will webb whose track life on tech was one of those tracks he's like oh no does this mean i've gone commercial he said on one of the rave lists so yeah people had to struggle with with these things but um well, there was a big question as to whether or not, you know, like AMP was a, a big deal because Electronic finally got its got its chance on MTV. But it was also one of those things where there was very little belief in it. And I think it like lasted. Uh, it didn't last very long. And for the time that it was on, they like stuck stuck it around 1230 in the morning. Uh, there were there was not it, it was one of those things that that was kind of half assed. They it existed and there was like a, an edict from up up high that this be done and we try this. But there was obviously people that weren't interested in seeing it succeed because it got put on at such weird times 
And uh, I, past that, there was just a lot of music that wasn't ever going to break into the mainstream. There wasn't enough mainstream style electronic music at the time. So the show was really full of like some really oddball stuff. As, as you mentioned, Aphex Twin was on there. Not going to not going to compute with a lot of people same with tricky same with cold cut a lot a lot of these videos i mean i love that show and you can go on youtube and watch full episodes of it complete with the commercial from 1997 it's kind of a, a cool trip doing that but you can see why it never really picked up because this is challenging stuff and america just you know it's not that they weren't ready for it it's just that in in the numbers that you would need to make a blip on mtv's radar it's just not accessible enough yeah and the and the mailing lists that Matos has been following, um, they were, quote, getting itchy that their grassroots scene could turn upside down. And, and um, you know, there was a lot of back and forth, a lot of complaining. But as as one guy on those lists, Chris Sattinger, posted on Midwest Raves, was that all these artists on AMP are Europeans. They've been in the mainstream for years. <laughs> he's like this, you know, he's pointing out that this is global music and that in Europe this stuff is mainstream, that in the UK and, and Europe where these people are operating most of the time, they're mainstream artists. And so it's yeah, not by definition, betrayal. if they if they have a music video, they're they're already big. Yeah, yeah. At the time. It wasn't like now where you can make them with your iPhone. But even Sattinger said, but still, bleeping noise and repetitive beats aren't going to play in Peoria. He's ultimately wrong about that. But in 1996, he was he was right about that. Although, you know, the thing is, one of the things that's happening right now in the majors is that hip hop is in the Jiggy era, the shiny suit era. But also people like Timbaland are coming along and we've already talked about Timberland's impact on the dance scene in England during the Simon Reynolds series. And hip hop's just kind of going to steal EDM's lunch for the next decade, and large part because of people like Timberland who are, I wouldn't even say Timberland's swiping techniques from EDM. He's definitely aware of what's gone on in EDM, but he's bringing it's a whole the new technology thing to the yeah. table. Yeah, yeah, he's got the tech. And he's bringing a whole new thing to the table that's extremely danceable and, and takes over R&B and hip hop. And frankly, hip hop pushes EDM off the dance floor in a lot of places or will in the next decade. But that's kind of getting ahead of our story. And then he gets into the Internet aspect. He, he's once again an artful segue where he's quoting um, the people on the email lists responding to MTV's show. Then he gives us an update on the state of these lists. And it was interesting. These lists are smaller than I had imagined. Like Mid Mid Midwestern Raves had 500 subscribers. SF Raves in the Bay Area had 400. NE Raves for the New England had 300. Um, and that attended to mirror the rise of interactive tech. And you, you were seeing at this point in time, internet cafes opening up in places like San Francisco and Seattle. Well, let's go ahead and hear our first song. This is Helter Skelter 97 by Meat Beat Manifesto.
that was Meat Beat Manifesto's Helter Skelter 97. Ryan, why the heck did you pick this? Industrial is getting into my electronic here. What is going on? Well, this was on Amped, the compilation, and this was regularly featured on Amped, the show. And it's uh, it's kind of just kind of goes to show you what they were playing at the time on that program uh, and qualifying it as electronica and using it as an attempt to push electronic music. So it, it shows you kind of how avant-garde and weird the music that was getting out there was and why maybe you know, your average, uh, your average teenager at 4 PM wouldn't love it. I loved it. I saw that and I was like, what is this? I need more, but yeah, <laughs> not for everybody. Cool. And, and so like I was saying, the, um, internet is, is expanding dramatically in this period of time, penetrating mainstream culture and the technology is improving. And so, like I said, you had internet cafes and it's hard to imagine now and everybody has their smartphone, but Back in the day, 25 years ago, people would go to cafes and they could rent computer access to computer terminals that were on the internet and they could check their email and look at the web and stuff like that. And that was that was a big thing. And he also talks about um, a publication called Hotwired, which was connected to Wired magazine, but it had separate editorial. And some of the crew at Hotwired started hosting um, a streamed internet radio show called Feedback. Um, um, that was using real audio, which was the first internet music medium. MP3s have been perfected or been perfected a while before this, but they're starting to come into to bigger circulation. But for a while, real audio, which was an early streaming technology, was dominant. It was the first internet music medium that really got traction. And so this guy, Jonathan Golub, is hosting the show Feedback. And one of the beauties of it is that the files were ready for download as soon as the live stream was over. And then Shortly after that, they started um, oh, the first DJ-centric webcast called Beta Lounge. And on the first year, they had guests like Derek May, Stacey Poland, Doc Scott, Gavin and Robbie Hardkiss, Kevin Saunderson of the Belleville Three, and Goldie. So they're getting A-list uh, names on that show. And it's interesting. Um, you know, this is going to very small audiences, but the archives were preserved. And so they did reach people. And it's a smaller scene. So it had an outsized impact. Did you ever catch any of the beta lounge or feedback? No, but I checked out some I was catching some real audio streams at the time. And, and boy, oh, boy, were they low quality. I mean, if you were lucky, you had a 56K modem. Most people were on 14.4 or 28.8, which, uh, which in practical uh, discussion means you're downloading stuff at about 10K per second. So uh, that weird squelch that you hear once in a while while listening to d digital music, real audio was like, I'd say like 50% squelch. It was just like, you could always hear the digital demons on the edge of all the frequencies just, just peeking in. But it was still, it was, it, at the time, everybody was happy about it. It was, it was like, let's people, you know, people in, in the late 1800s listening to like the crappiest vinyl record and just being like, it's like I'm in the room with them. You were just blown away by the fact that you were listening to somebody uh, across the country DJing at the time. So, and there was, you know, MP3s by 1996, MP3s were a thing. There was no Napster or LimeWire, but there were websites that were set up that were curating collections of electronic music that if you knew where to, where to go and where to find them, you could, you know, download a track one track in 20 minutes to 30 minutes. And because it took you so long to get that one track, you treasured it and you've listened to it a lot. Yeah. And it's no coincidence that, you know, some of the cutting edge of techno at this time is, is fascinated with glitch 
popcore or glitch pop or whatever, where they're taking these sounds of those computer squelch distortions and and errors and turning them into music because it was permeating the music at the time if you were getting it on your computer um then he segues into a discussion of the major labels and and the artists that they're zeroed in on and it talks about astral works which we talked about last week which was an imprint owned by um virgin and virgin's this you know major label multiple continent um british british label but they've got a big american presence in fact they have virgin europe and virgin america as separate um imprints or separate divisions within the larger corporation and astral works is just a relatively tiny imprint within this monster and they want daft punk they think of course we'll get them because we're used to cherry picking virgin europe's lineup but virgin america muscled in although matos makes it clear that daft punk wanted to be on virgin america they didn't want to be on astral works the little um specialty imprint they wanted to be on the big thing and they named some of the you know, I, th- I think Counting Crows uh, or Blur or somebody of the artists that they mention as as sort of the mainstream rockist type acts that are on Virgin America. I, I think I've got those totally wrong. I didn't write that down. So don't quote me on that. But um, but they said one of the guys from Daft Punk said, even if they didn't get it at the beginning, maybe it's a good thing that they get it now and change their view about the whole thing, presumably meaning electronica, which is, as we discussed last week, the the term that the major labels had settled on uh, to try to promote this stuff. Um, and, and then he talks a little bit about Daft Punk's approach to marketing themselves and that the riffs and tweaks were the stars, the visuals were the star, because they frequently, you know, they're beginning to experiment with the masks and the helmet at this time. The logo was the star. Um, they weren't interested in becoming becoming personal celebrities but they're interested in daft punk becoming this big brand and i think that's a really smart way to handle fame by the way if you can do it behind a mask and you know that that presumably we're modeling it on um um you are but the detroit act from the the second wave of techno that um underground resistance that you know wore masks and had a very sort of public enemy uh defiance of the corporate thing but but you are was anti-stardom and Daft Punk kind of swipes their model in pursuit of stardom and uses the masks to make these personas and these characters that are larger than life and keeps themselves as individuals out of the spotlight. So pretty brilliant. Yeah, if you're going to wear a mask, though, make sure it's a comfortable one. You don't want to end up having to wear a dead mouse mask everywhere or wear a marshmallow on your head or something. The Daft Punk masks were were classy and sexy and good. So, you know, it was it was a very smart choice on, on, on their part to like, you know, look at it and be like, what kind of helmet would I like to wear for the next 15 years and, and make a choice like that? Yeah, yeah, it was it was wisely done, although I'm sure it gets a little hot and stuffy in there. Uh, then he talks about Spin Magazine. And again, magazines were a big deal back then. Uh, magazines still have another decade, half decade of, of big money making before they collapse in the 20 in the 2000s. And so you know, when Spin Magazine, which is kind of the alternative version of Rolling Stone, although still just as mainstream and corporate, I mean, it was in the same 7-Elevens and grocery stores as Rolling Stone was, but they do a cover story in October 96 on the Electronica Revolution. And they talk about how, uh, Matos talks about how um, the industry settled on Electronica, that rave was over, Acid House was too old. I mean, that goes back to 88 or 89. Techno was too severe. So Electronica functioned much in the way the term New Wave, which was Seymour Stein's uh, coinage of Sire Records fame. Um, that was his coinage back in the late 70s when punk quickly 
became poison to radio programmers because of the infamy of the Sex Pistols and the bad conduct of the Sex Pistols. They rebranded as New Wave and acts like Blondie and the Cars, etc., rose to immense popularity while seeming slightly less threatening than punk's act, punked, punk acts like the Sex Pistols and the Ramones that were seen as too threatening for radio in the mainstream. Um, but still, a lot of people were baffled by this term electronica, like Norman Cook said, you know, Fatboy Slim said, we disowned that silly tag. Actually, uh, it, Norman Cook was baffled. It was Liam Howlett of the Prodigy that was that that said we disowned that silly tag. So yeah. um, electronica for me as a label was just like a catch all for all the electronic music that wasn't particularly dance or DJ oriented, but still obviously came with a ton of influence from dance music. And I still use it to classify a lot of current electronic music that refuses to fit into any other box nicely. But that's like me being a product of my times, because uh, nowadays, if you say electronica to anybody, uh, they figure that you're probably talking about that whole 94 to 99 era where the big labels were trying to make electronic music happen with these crossover acts. Yeah, ironically, the Prodigy is the act I associate with that label the most. Um, kind of unfair, and they didn't like it. But let's hear our next track. This is Antisocial Get Into Love from 1997. And that was Get Into Love from Antisocial from 1997. Why do we pick this one? Uh, we're going to be talking about Happy Hardcore in about five to ten minutes. And uh, this is a track from 1997 that kind of captures the state of Happy Hardcore as it was at the time. Very donkey and bouncy and stompy and stupid. <laughs> in, in the best possible way. I don't want to make it sound like I love this stuff. Yeah, it, it was quite fun. I went back and listened to several of these uh, comps, uh, happy hardcore comps we're going to be talking about and did enjoy them quite a bit. But let's get back and talk about the Prodigy a little bit. Um, you know, last time we talked about them, they couldn't make it to uh, Organic 96 because of they were working on their next album. The album hits, the single Firestarter drops. Um, it features Keith Flint as, um, you know, with his reverse mohawk. And it's just a star turn. I, it, it was dramatic. It caught your attention. I didn't watch MTV very much at that point in time. Still couldn't avoid it. It was absolutely unavoidable. It was added to their regular rotation, MTV's regular rotation in October 96. And in six weeks, it made the buzz bin, which is um, the category they put this, the videos that they were pushing. And, and if you made the buzz bin in 1996, I mean, just open up your bank account and watch the money roll in because MTV controlled the industry to an amazing degree in the late 90s. And then that triggers a, a record label bidding war and Madonna's Maverick label um, won it. She's rolling in money from the Alanis Morissette debut album that sold over 10 million copies. Meanwhile, in December, um, this other track comes out, Setting Sun by the Chemical Brothers that had Noel Gallagher of Oasis on lead vocals. The track sounded almost like a cover of the Beatles tomorrow never knows, but updated and dramatically louder and more exciting um, with a totally different vocal track and melody and lyrics. 
And the Beatles were watching the Chemical Brothers very closely. They're listening. To, they have their people listening to the albums, and it's not the Beatles itself, but it was their organization, um, the Apple Records uh, uh, organization is is really ready to sue the Chemical Brothers for sampling the Beatles without permission. But they were slick enough to to essentially rewrite the song without touching, without literally swiping the melody or the lyrics. It's a one chord song, so that's not a problem. You can't copyright beats. That's the thing they got the closest. So, you know, uh, the Chemical Brothers are definitely down to do this. And I remember, you know, as a rockist kid, like it made a big impact and it made me kind of proud. Like, wow, the Beatles sure were hit that they were 30 years ahead of their time, that their most out there track gets basically covered as a hit single 30 years later. Um, and they talk, Matos talks about the marketing strategy and it was, they were aiming at, the anglophile rock kid the kind of kid like i had been uh, in the 80s that you know would subscribe to the new musical express or melody maker and and follow these artists like oasis who are huge at the time and you know these guys are talking about chemical brothers and now one of them is a guest on the on the record so um you know it was an easy sell to radio although Matos quotes an Astral Works executive who was baffled by the the fact that this thing was a single hit single. He was like, "It's an air horn strung together with these pummeling beats." He's like, "This could only have been a hit in 1996." I don't know. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, the Chemical Brothers. Uh, I feel I feel like the Prodigy for for all their electronica success immediately just kind of picked up and got dropped into the alternative bin and and electronic music doesn't even really get like a lot of uh, a, a lot a, a lot of uh, cues or, or anything for their success well the chemical brothers this is obviously like an electronic music group their 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 sounds are very electronic and it's 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 almost it, it's closer to the source, and it's harder to ignore the electronic influence that's on it. While 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 Fat of the Land by Prodigy was so slick that it basically just kind of stepped right outside of anything that rave or electronic music was doing before, and and had more was it was just like a mainstream alternative album. Yeah, and because Keith Flint becomes such an icon. They really read more like an industrial act to me. This is at the very peak of Nine Inch Nails commercial success, um, and the prodigy did not seem radically different from other acts in that vein. And, and industrial acts had been crossing over into the rock world for like a decade by that point, ministry and skinny puppy and KMFDM and other acts like that. Uh, MC 900 foot Jesus had all sort of made a splash and rockets like me could, you know, couldn't ignore it. We were aware of it and had some of those records and, and dug it. So yeah, I think that's a good point that prodigy was kind of sticking out um, or kind of moving away from the mainstream of electronic music. Uh, and then, then they talks about a party that happened in LA. It was called Seventh Heaven. It was New Year's Eve 96, New Year's Day 97. It was promoted by uh, Go Ventures. Um, Wade Randolph Hampton, who's a DJ, but he was also part of the promotional team. It seems like he was one of the sources. And th there's a flyer that I found on the internet that Matos talks about that, you know, some of the people that were there say the, the thing was jinxed from the moment we saw the flyer. And it, it was essentially like a copy of a National Geographic magazine cover with a reenactment of of Michelangelo's um, painting of God touching Adam's finger, except that Adam is a robot. So it had this sort of hand of God coming out of the cover, and people found that ominous. And then the, as soon as the thing starts, there's a company handing out these experimental drinks that 
are like what are going to become energy drinks. This is like proto Red Bull or monster energy drink, but they hadn't perfected the formula. So that more than 30 kids OD'd on this stuff and had to be ambulanced out of there. And, uh, you know, it's a party for 1500 people, but the upstairs room where they're doing the countdown only had room for like 800. So you've got 700 other people trying to get upstairs. Then you've got more people outside the party trying to get inside then you've got the LAPD. LAPD is infamously fascist throughout this whole period. Anybody who knows anything about punk rock history or or the history of the – L.A. Of the, history. Yeah, L.A. history, the history of the riots in the 60s, the history of the riots in the 90s. So the LAPD arrives on the scene immediately starts firing rubber bullets and cracking heads. And, and this leads to like um, – sort of a moral panic in the American media with 2020, the news magazine um, on ABC does an expose and uh, they call it a rave and it's the latest kids, kids craze and they party all night long into the morning hours. So, you know, Barbara Walters and everybody are, um, you know, wringing their hands and going crazy. And we'll talk in yeah. subsequent chapters what this leads to. The, the, the chapter really enforces something we've mentioned before, which is like the Murphy's Law of Raving. Anything that can go wrong will. Like, imagine you're the promoter throwing this big rave and some random people hand out energy drinks outside the party, which causes everyone to get sick and and no one can get in. The paramedics are eva evacuating people right at the entrance, uh, which starts this riot. It's the most bizarre world series of events you could imagine. But yeah, and chaos... it's legal stuff. The energy drinks are perfectly legal. They're just badly formulated. This is caffeine people are routine on. Yeah, and chaos followed these events like everywhere. Like, And given the amount of that chaos, it's, it's a shock that more people weren't dying. That's the only silver lining in all of this. Somehow venues weren't burning down every weekend with hundreds of kids inside and acid heads weren't dying en masse of hypothermia in fields. But disasters like this show you just how unstable the scene was like you had like the last chapter where you have this corporate organic event with all these big name artists on big labels and stuff like that and these are kind of going off okay and then you have these big massive ragers just getting shut down left and right later on in the chapter you got these people these concert promoters trying to really get into the rave and finding out that murphy's law is going to hit them too yes and we don't mean the new york hardcore band but let's take a quick break here from our sponsors when we come back we'll talk about happy hardcore And so after he talks about the disastrous Seventh Heaven debacle, then he segues into um, some of the compilations that were being put out. We go back to Moonshine Records, the Levy Brothers label that we talked about. Um, this is an indie label that's been doing compilations of tracks that are big in Europe and the UK and, and bringing them over on CD in the States. And they and they name the other – Maltos names the other Levy brother. It's John Levy to go with Steve Levy that um, – we talked about last time and they have a new series their speed limit series had already gone to nine volumes it was kind of played out it was keeping up sort of with hardcore evolving into jungle then um as jungle developed there was a reaction we talked about this in some of the simon reynolds series there's a reaction where a certain segment of the audience didn't want to go with the evolution of the music into jungle they wanted to continue hearing hardcore and this form evolved called happy hardcore they gave them exactly what they wanted. It's a very, um, I hate to do this in racial terms, just a very white style, very sort of melodic style. It's kind of like GABA, but without the aggression. It's just as fast as that. And um, the Moonshine Records put out a comp called Happy to be Hardcore 2, the number, and the letter B, Happy to be Hardcore, mixed by DJ Anabolic Frolic. And it's 
quite a success. Um, Frolic was a DJ in Toronto who was throwing parties at a club called Hullabaloo. And, um, you know, this stuff was successful. The, this was the classic sort of genre that the hipsters and the cognoscenti hated. And, and part because of its audience, the candy kids, the infamous candy kids were drawn to this stuff. And these are kids who are basing their look on the cheesiest stuff of the earlier generation of raves in the early 90s. You know, the cat in the hat hats, the Mickey Mouse gloves, the ridiculous fat pants, rainbow colors. Um, you know, the necklaces of, of candy, the pacifiers, the whole bit. And, and, and another thing that freaked people out was the age difference. And they get a quote from um, a woman named Char- Charm Statler, a.k.a. the Gabber Girl. And she said the most jarring part was the age difference. In San Francisco, it was 25 and up and professionals, and I was the youngest one there. In Minneapolis, I was old at 21. And so... And also the candy kids are extremely reckless with their drug taking and their uh, sexual um, indulgences. And they're having big cuddle puddles uh, when they're taking E and, and, you know, big, big hug piles. And and, the, and Mato says they were also definitely the most deluded people on the scene. And, they, and then he's got an anecdote about these drug dealing sisters where these drug dealers had hired these young twin girls or sisters to you know, go through the party and sort of sexually tease people and, and sell drugs. So yeah, some ugly craziness is, is associated with this scene. You know, for a chapter talking about the media hysterics of the mid nineties, uh, rave scene, this chapter certainly foists some hysterics on candy kids, all manner of messed up stuff happened at parties. And we're just going to single out the candy ravers. It seems a little bit much. I, I see. So you're going to stand up for the candy, the candy kids. I think it's just more disturbing if you're 25 or 26 and you're seeing somebody who's 16, 17, maybe 14, 15 doing drugs and, and doing all this stuff that you um, are kind of more aware of the downside of and you know that they are not. And so, yeah, but I mean, like a lot of those people were probably doing similar things when they first got into it, because there's like a whole spectrum of what classifies as a candy kid. If, if a girl is wearing fat pants, a tank top, a cookie monster backpack and a soother necklace. Is she just a standard raver kid or are we putting her in the candy kid pile now? It's like, how many candy bracelets do you need to have before you're suddenly a candy kid? So it's just a lot of my parties were trans, happy, hardcore and gabber. So we had a lot of candy kids coming through. And and my personal view on it was two years later, all those candy kids were now the toned down fashionable ravers complaining about the candy kids. And then two years <laughs> later, they were gone from the scene. Well, gone from the parties, but not gone from the internet complaining about the candy kids. So it's, it's to me, it's always just been a natural evolution from these people kind of coming in and, you know, putting on the cat in the hat hat, because that seems like, you know, the thing to do, maybe getting a bit out of, out of control through the, through the glory days of it and, you know, wearing way too much candy and then toning it down and leaving or burning out and leaving. But either way, like, it's just a natural, there's, there's like a life cycle for, for ravers. And, you know, most ravers had a candy phase, even if they're not willing to admit it. Yeah. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the events that happened around this time that gave the candy kids an especially bad reputation, but that's coming up later. Right now we're going to talk about the Chemical Brothers' next album, Dig Your Own Hole, which came out April 8th, 1997. And, you know, it talks about how some of the people at the record label are staying up nights so excited, waiting for Billboard magazine to come out and tell them where it was on the charts. And it opened way better than they expected, number 14 on Billboard with 48,000 sold right out of the gate. So very successful for 
um, what was then considered sort of an alternative or fringe artist. And then a lot of sort of triumphant quotes from people saying things like, you know, Chemical Brothers were so good, you could make an album off the Chemical Brothers. You'd listen to eight or ten Chemical Brothers songs in a row, but you would not say listen to eight or ten Crystal Method songs. I think it's oh, maybe the sacrilege, one fair. sacrilege. <laughs> the yeah, Crystal Method it. Vegas I could listen to over and over and over again. Chemical Brothers gives me a headache after 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 one listen. I think, you know, I, I was big on the Chemical Brothers um, and Fat Boy Slim in this time, but I definitely think it aged somewhat badly, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But um, it does draw this, this review from Entertainment Weekly. Electronica's appeal is, let's face it, inherently limited. Synthesized bleeps set to rigid computer thwacks will never have the mass appeal of pop songs with singers and hummable choruses. Um, and it's kind of funny because... The Chemical Brothers were doing breakbeats. They were not rigid computer thwacks. They were they were sampling real drummers uh, doing you know real drum breaks, and they weren't really into synthesized bleeps either. They were using samples and and I mean occasionally they did have like the air horn sound or whatever. But yeah, they had some shrill techno screwdrivers mixed in with their floaty psychedelica, and that's that's the one thing. Their albums are a little bit uneven. Their singles are killer. But, uh, you know, Fat of the Land is a much more cohesive mood album while, while Chemical Brothers Dig Your Own Hole does five different things all very well. But cohesively, it's a bit of a of a of a of a potluck. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like the Moby albums uh, that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But then then Matos talks about how the mailing list contorted themselves trying to pretend it wasn't any good. So there's this tension of people who don't want their scene taken away or who've abandoned their scene as you have you as you've been alleging um mm -hmm. and and are, are are now you know throwing rocks from the from the sidelines and then it talks yeah you mentioned fatherland this is the new prodigy album that comes out in june of 97 and liam howlett the musical mastermind of prodigy says you know there was no master plan of trying to crack america ever Fair enough. But the emergence of Keith Flint as a front man definitely helped, uh, no matter how organic that was or natural pro artistic process that happened. And it made a big difference. Like I said, there was the bidding war and, and Madonna's Maverick Records had won. They were hoping the record would go top 20. Instead, it debuted at number one in America. And this is a period when the charts are unusually accurate. It, you know, as a student of music history, you know, there's no music charts in the beginning of the 20th century. They, they exist in the middle of the 20th century, but they're manipulated by people who are getting the record stores that are reporting to, to report different, you know, records or record clerks would just report the records they liked as selling better and records they didn't like, they would kind of weigh it down. In the early 90s, they switched to SoundScan and they're tracking record sales. They're tracking CD sales at the counter just objectively. And so we have a pretty good idea of, you know, how many records or how many CDs and albums sold in this period. And Prodigy is one of many. This happened with Garth Brooks. It happened with Dr. Dre, where you have these massive hits the record industry had not planned on having. They were surprised by, but they were undeniable because of the sound scan technology. Um, Spin puts them on the cover in September of 1997. It's one of their best-selling issues of that era, featuring Keith Flint, the icon on the cover. And this causes a whole bunch of major labels to start their own electronic subsidiaries. You've got Kinetic from Reprise Records, part of the WEA empire, Outpost on Geffen Records, 1500 from A&M Records, F111 from Warner Brothers, and that uh, crew, they hired DJDB that we've talked about before, and Andrew Goldstone, who's a former Astroworks executives, and they hired these guys, and Matos, uh, I think, interviewed Goldstone because he's 
talks at great length about the wonderful, lavish expense accounts that they had and the great meals they got to eat. And, and his quote was, they thought we'd find them the next prodigy. And kind of the dirty joke is there wasn't a next prodigy. Sorry, major labels, but, but you're just spending a bunch of money higher, you know, buying expensive lunches for, for freaks and weirdos. Well, let's go ahead and hear our next tune. And this is Filter and the Crystal Method, Trip Like I Do from 1997. like I do, from 1997 by Filter and the Crystal Method. Why do we pick this one? This was on the uh, Spawn soundtrack, which was one of several soundtracks that tried to fuse uh, you know, more mainstream alternative uh, rock or new metal with electronic music. There was another, I can't remember what movie it was, but uh, but that, that, that mixed uh, hip-hop and electronic music in a similar way. There were several albums that, that tried to do this, and it's just kind of, uh, this represents... The American record industry really trying to make this crossover thing happen, and just, it, no matter w- whatever way that they can, if they got to put guitars over over this rave breakbeat stuff in order to get your foot in the door, they will. So I got to hand it to them, you know. Like it, it wasn't just like the disco thing where they made a bunch of garbage and they put out like you know just a volume with no thought of of, of quality. Like these guys tried really hard, and they had a lot of the best people working on it. And uh, this filter track is a great reimagination of the Crystal Method track. Like the, they work together really well, and it's one of the few times that you have one of these kind of like re, re, rock remixes that's better than the original, arguably. Yeah, and that movie soundtrack thing was a proven way that they would occasionally get a movie that was sort of aimed at a youth audience and they would really focus on pitching tracks to the producers and directors so that the net effect could be these sort of compilation albums that were sort of samplers and introductions to new genres. I think less than zero in the eighties was kind of the first of these or one of the first that I remember, you know, that featured like Slayer and LL Cool J and Ice-T on, on soundtracks and, and brought it to a, uh, a mainstream audience that might not have been familiar with that kind of music. And so they're trying that same, same trick. And there've been a number of albums that uh, had or soundtracks that have broken uh, hip hop artists all through this period as well. Then he talks about a bunch of uh, live tours that happened in the summer and fall of 97 that pretty much all stiffed uh, Jerry Gerard, the guy who put together the organic uh, 96 we talked about last time. He had been hoping to put together his own sort of electronica Lollapalooza but and he was going to call it the Chaotica tour after his own booking agency. That that fell apart because Prodigy, Orbital, and the Orb were all on Lollapalooza instead. And Lollapalooza is kind of a sinking ship at this point. That was the last 
um, Lollapalooza for a long time. Um, you know, the Hardkiss brothers were on there too, saying we went on after Tool. <laughs> it, it, it didn't work for whatever you know reason. For whatever reason. <laughs> yeah, and uh, uh, and then Organic '97 also flopped. They had to move it out of the forest down to the city. They had a weird lineup with Aphex Twin and then the big big beat group Sneaker Pimps. Um, and if you think the Chemical Brothers aged badly, like I was going back and listening to a lot of the sort of the second tier big beat stuff and that has aged even worse i think um i still like the chemical brothers but i do it it's got that feeling of candy or something that you eat and it leaves you with a tummy ache to me um daft punk was doing a string of club dates so they stayed away from these kind of uh, uh misbegotten uh, arena tours the electric highways uh, tour was sponsored by spin and bf goodrich tires had crystal medline method headlining and it was a misfire from the off with turnout, disappointing turnout. And the other big flop tour was Big Top USA. We've talked about Marcy Weber. She was a record executive who was early in on electronic dance music and trying to push it. She booked it. She had Moby headlining it. And you know, she was he, the one that did. Uh, was it was it the even further? No, no, not even further. Sorry. It's the. Uh, oh, God, this is going to drive me nuts. Uh, it was co-promoted with the NASA guys, and it was the uh, like Stars Across America or something like that. And so they did a big one like a couple years earlier when Moby was on the top. And uh, it was it was a pretty good success uh, because they were just kind of going in. It's yeah, see the light. There that we go. Thank tour. you so much. Yeah. Thank yeah. you for and saving so she- me. Yeah, you're welcome. I, I just I had to let you flounder for a long time first. Give him enough rope, <laughs> my philosophy. Um, but yeah, so she's going back to the well and trying to go bigger. Unfortunately, Moby's most recent album at this point, Animal Rights, was a rock album that that Mata said spit in the eye of the rave scene. Like, um, you know, doing everything he can basically to alienate his fan base. It was a difficult album. He had to change the lyrics to one of the punk songs he was covering, The Mission of Burma Classic. That's when I reached for my revolver because of the Columbine massacre that had happened. Ends up, Electra drops him right after. I think they put together one more compilation of his stuff and then dropped him. Um, and Moby was visibly unhappy the whole time. They get canceled in Asbury Park. Um, in Dallas, so few people came that Moby had to give back his guarantee so everybody else could get some money. In Oakland, you know, originally supposed to be in San Francisco, but their Bay Area show should have been one of their sure things. And there's a BART strike. So the rapid transit uh, subway system in the Bay Area is on strike so nobody can get to the show. And the one show that succeeds was in L.A. where they rode under um, the tent of some local promoters, Pasquale Ortello that we talked about before, and Philip Blaine of Insomniac, who we also talked about before, uh, absorbed the show into their annual blowout Nocturnal Wonderland and drew 5,500 people. But that was less than Organic 96 had drawn the year before, and that was the best show into the tour. Moby goes out of his way to trash the tour on stage from his next uh, gigs. And then the Always one- a class act. Yes, Moby. <laughs> Moby, Moby, Moby. Um, but the one tour that does do well is Moonshine Over America, where Moonshine, you know, the label we've been talking about, the indie label that's been putting out these comps. They've got mainstream distribution, though, so they're in all the record stores. They do a smaller tour with um, acts that are featured on their comps like um, AK-1200 and Superstar DJ Kiyoki, and they 
plan it very well. They've got low budgets, least amount of press, least amount of advertising, but the most successful because they based their itinerary on sound scan sales data. They knew which markets were the best for their artists. Like AK-1200 sold the most stuff, CDs in LA, New York, DC, Miami, and Denver. That's where they booked him. And if, if an artist had already played someplace in the last six months, they didn't book him there. So just you know, good business. Yeah. And, that, that one size fits all idea is really what sunk a lot of the other guys. Like Big Top was a, an odd one because it had acts like Banco de Gaia, 808 State and Imperion, who had no real on the ground following in the US. Like you can't just show up in America without extensive exposure at raves beforehand and expect people to want to like go to this rave to see your act. Uh, Moby was now more of a negative because he was just seen as passe at best and practically like you know, both feet out the door rave at worst. So I can see how that wouldn't have done well. Um, Electric Highway looked pretty solid, though, like Crystal Method, Fluke, Green Velvet, Doc Martin, DJ Sneak, Terry Mullen. It was a solid lineup. But it's just one of those things about raves is that it's not just about the big acts. You can't bring major label artists in and think you're going to beat all the $10 warehouse parties going on the same night with all local DJs. Because if the influencers and connectors are going to the warehouse party, uh, once it looks like the crowd is going to one and not the other, that's the way everyone goes. It's, it's extremely difficult to be an outsider and try to throw a rave in a city where you're not from that scene, you're not integrated into it, and you don't know that there's another story on that's going to eat your lunch. So and things you're are not not even promoting a rave; you're promoting a concert. You know, so it's it's a totally different approach. Even though you have electronica artists, it's not a rave. And yeah, and they're holding their nose a little bit, and things like that are still too word of mouth, and there's legitimate distrust and uneasy from ravers around legal venues with proper security and all that it just seems like it could be a bad time you know yeah and let's hear our final track this is fat boy slim's build it up tear it down from was Fatboy Slim's Build It Up, Tear It Down from 1998. Why'd you pick this one? Ah, well, Fatboy Slim becomes a focus in just a few moments, and I figured we've all heard Rockefeller skank, so Build It Up, Tear It Down <laughs> is, is, is just another one that could go into any big beat set that would really get people moving, so I wanted to show people there's more to Fatboy than just Rockefeller skank. Yep, and and excellent pick, and we'll talk about Fatboy in just a second, but first I want to mention one last thing about uh, the Moonshine Over America tour, and that was that uh, DJ Kiyoki uh, was welcoming his escape from limelight to big club in new york because michael alec who was the promoter of limelight was convicted of the murder of angel melendez and was sentenced on october 24th 1997 so that's kind of one of the most infamous incidents that and the kids movie i think are the two things that really painted the candy kids in a bad light and painted the whole rave scene in a bad light um that that triggered this moral panic that's going to be building but let's switch back to Fatboy slim and his hit Rockefeller Skank, which Matos calls the ultimate big beat track, hard to argue with that, comes out June 16th, 1998. It's on the Amp 2 comp by Astroworks Records, you know, f referencing the MTV show, which has, I think, been canceled by this time. And Matos talks about 
how, you know, we talked about how last week that electronica was the hope of the record industry for just a quick minute, but very soon teen pop, you know, people like NSYNC and Britney Spears, new metal acts like uh, Corn and uh, Limp Biscuit, and then hip hop, and I already mentioned Timbaland, Jay-Z, etc. Um, Missy Elliott are, are the ones that save the music industry. So the music industry kind of moves on. They've got Timbaland. What do they need uh, with, with, you know, all this crazy electronic yeah, every stuff. other week, there's a hip hop album coming out doing bigger numbers than fat of the land and fat of the land was one of those albums. We're like, Oh, this is it. We got it. And, yeah. and but there was, there was no follow up. There was no next big thing. Yeah. And it wasn't like Nirvana where it cleared the decks. It, it was just one of many, uh, successful albums and a big pot of successful albums and there's a lot of crossovers going on like prodigies remixes the wu-tang clan's method man um aphrodite who's a drum and bass artist remixed the jungle brothers chuck d partners with tic tac cool keith the legendary uh, hip-hop mc partners with the hardest brothers karis one partners with goldie so there's a lot of this crossover stuff fat boy slim's album comes out you've come a long way baby makes Norman Cook briefly a pop star in the U.S. It was just inescapable. Christopher Walken starred in a video for, I guess, was it Rockefeller Skank? I can't remember. No, no, no. It was, it was, it was, I think it was the album after that. Yeah. 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 The cool thing about Fatboy Slim is that he was, he went up and he became really a big mainstream success and then he got oversaturated and then he disappeared for a minute and then he came back uh, and he went back underground and he had a bunch of success uh, making more conventional house house tracks that were were just massive anthems yeah and then then he talks about moby and what's going on with moby that moby's you know gotten himself kicked off his record label totally alienated the whole um electronic dance music audience comes across this box set of blues gospel and folk called songs sounds of the south uh, collected by Alan Lomax for the Library of Congress back in the 30s and 40s. And uh, he falls in love. It's his record label, British label, because he doesn't have an American one to license the tracks. And, and Honey is the first of these products. It comes out in 98 on the UK 12-inch. Starts in, um, some college radio play. And that excites uh, Virgin um, ex- or V2's executive Kate Hyman to sign him. Then he puts together the Play album, which is going to come out on June 1st, 1999. And he says, I wasn't trying to alienate anyone with animal rights. I also wasn't trying to de-alienate anyone either. And makes, you know, goes back out there making some low-key DJ appearances in the spring. And the record label's aiming for half a million sales, which they consider shooting for the moon. Little did they know this thing is going to be just ginormous and then he mentions um a virgin records in store for sasha and digweed the british progressive house djs this is the final installment of their northern exposure series expeditions comes out and i think this is in chicago it wasn't clear from the book um, where it was but three thousand kids show up and they feel like you know rock stars there for a minute um and then and this is an interesting one because this is kind of the segue to the next chapter that he usually puts at the various end but he puts it up um here before he talks about woodstock 99 and then um then we get to woodstock 99 i hope people don't feel like we're teasing them talking woodstock 99 at the beginning and just getting to it the last five minutes of the well show. that's the issue with the chapter names is i i have no problem with the way that uh michelangelo matos formatted the book and everything else like that but it, i can see how it can be a little bit of a tease as far as like the way the whole thing is structured is it usually builds up to every chapter builds up to uh you know a party and then that party might get a page or two 
and it you know it's really more of a vehicle this all of this kind of stuff each party is more of a vehicle to try and explain certain trends that are going on than yeah. than really something whole, wholly about it and we'll still give woodstock i'd say yeah a good 10 minutes hopefully yeah we'll 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 go a little over it and do that because this is one of the pivotal live events i mean there was just a documentary about this concert last year although it hardly mentions moby and fat boy slim at all because they played the rave hangar which was one of several stages there and it was not the main stage it was half indoor half outdoor but still like 25,000 people congregated around moby for his set fat boy slim had even more people the next night and it's just out of hand um you know, Fatboy Slim said it was the most open drug usage I've ever seen. The cuddle puddles were turning into orgies. And David Prince, who's one of the promoters that we've talked about many times, is there. And he says it was truly one of the more wild things I'd ever seen. People went fucking apeshit. It was great. And for Moby and Fatboy Slim and their sets proper, it was, although somebody still managed to drive a truck with a skate ramp on the back into the crowd, I think during Fatboy Slim's set, um, you know. Yeah, and, which tells you kind of the chaos that, that's yeah. going on. That that I guess that seemed like a good idea. Maybe that was something that they, they had planned to do. And it just, you know, one of those things that an ad exec thought was a good idea. And then they tried to roll it in and it was just just not a good idea. Yeah, just a bad, bad idea. But the whole thing was a disaster because – the ticket prices were really high, like $180, which at the time was extremely high. And the the promoters had spent all their money on the axe. So your ticket price went to the axe, but the promoters still wanted to make their money. So that it's happening on this hideous, like abandoned military facility, like airplane hangars and, and landing strips. There's no shade. There's no place to sit. They only have free water on the very perimeters of of, of the, the event. And they're charging out the wazoo for bottled water and other drinks. The security teams were all kids, basically, who get there and take their shirts off and they're no longer the security team. So they just vanish. The crowd's very ugly. I don't want to get into trash and new metal here, but they drew a certain kind of crowd this was a weird cultural mo moment where sort of third wave feminism had devolved into like girls gone wild sort of exploitation of people it's a very frat boy rapey type crowd there are multiple rapes that happen at this crowd there are multiple deaths and a massive riot that limp biscuit takes over the top but you know yeah, if you thought the skate if you, if you thought the skateboard uh, truck idea was bad on Sunday night. The Red Hot Chili Peppers give out, or or somebody gives out like a hot, like fifty thousand candles to the crowd, with the idea that everybody's going to light the candle and hold the candle up, and it's going to be this beautiful like memorial for something. And of course, what happens is that everybody starts setting shit on fire. Yeah, so and, it was a complete disaster. That's when everything really pushed over the top. But apparently, everything was on the edge of chaos from Saturday afternoon onwards. Once you know, people were running out of money. No, and nobody had any money left for food and water. The whole place is an air force base that was designed to be impenetrable. So there was no way in or out once you were in so you were just like the the way that it was described is that the promoters got you in and then they took you by the ankles and they tried to shake all the money out of you and it was kind of the yeah. first one of the first examples of of just where capitalism run amok uh comes in and really hits you know the rubber hits the road and the people there are not happy with it so there was just a, a real there was a city's worth of people with zero infrastructure and everybody was getting angry 
and there were people there who were obviously out for trouble. The sexual harassment, the sexual assault, the rapes, they were real. Like if you yeah. read first person accounts of it, it was it, it's intense, man. And it was no different. There was disturbing stuff going on at the rave tent as well. Girls who were crowd surfing were having their clothes ripped off. People were having to pull them out pull them off like the waves to save them and take take them down i i have like personal accounts from somebody who was there talking about that and it's just uh it, it wasn't by any means everybody or even a majority or anything else like that but even if you've just got you know a couple of rotten apples that barrel was was spoiling by saturday night yeah yeah it was just a bad bad scene and and uh you know, Big Beat fit right into the vibe of that era. It wasn't just that time and place. It was also that whole era. Something was janky in the culture that was expressed very negatively. And like you said, an utter failure of capitalism. And then, um, you know, Norman Cook, Fatboy Slim, was escorted right out after his set and put in a car to the airport. And so before he even, you know, normally he liked to party with the fans after a set, but this time they've got him on a plane out of the country. And he says, by the time I got home, I saw footage on the news of my dressing room on fire, you know, and, and they even talk about how his dressing room, his trailer had two doors and one of the doors, you know, I guess you could access with a stairwell. The other door just opened out into empty space, you know, 10, 20 feet above the ground. So even the even the dressing rooms were dangerous if you weren't careful with what you're doing. Just a, a bad, bad scene. And I guess kind of this is the capstone. This is the bad end that the record labels attempt to promote electronica or to promote electronic dance music as electronica. This is kind of the, the last gasp of that. Um, yeah, yeah well, it's, it's interesting because I never I, I at the time I didn't really even know that there was a, a rave a rave hanger and it wasn't super well advertised even now trying to find out who played the rave hanger for sure. There's, there's like a press release talking about uh, a couple of people. They said that Perry Farrell was going to DJ there and they say Lenny D is going to be there, but they spelled Lenny D's name wrong. So I don't know if it's Lenny D I wanted to like email Lenny D and be like, did you play Woodstock 99? Like, what is the <laughs> deal with this? Uh, Dave Ralph is this big progressive uh, trance uh, DJ and he played after Fatboy Slim for like five hours and uh, he's not mentioned anywhere on the internet except in interviews by himself and on that YouTube video that I sent you to show you that you know the vibe at in the rave tent was still very much a, a Woodstock 99 half the women are naked everybody's pulling off their clothes and there's writhing puddles of 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 people doing God knows what like all yeah you know documented and real Yes, it's it's. I'm just glad I wasn't there. It's it's painful enough to go back and watch the documentaries and the videos and read about it. It's a, just a bad scene from a bad time, and that wraps up our episode. Next week we'll be back to talk about the Detroit Electronic Music Festival from May 26th to 29th, 2000. So we'll get into the 21st century next week. For Ryan Harkness, I'm Nate Wilcox, and we've been discussing Michelangelo Matos's book. The underground is massive. How electronic dance music conquered America. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Ryan and Nate talk about the 2000 Detroit Electronic Musical Festival, which finally brought the techno pioneers a measure of popular acclaim in their home city. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 